Now, as we come to the scripture, that that line would be true, that we would find out as we contemplate, as we think, as we meditate upon the scripture, that we would find out the greatness of your loving heart. Father, that you would reveal that to us, that none would leave here without knowing that. Uh, This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Turn please to Hebrews and chapter 12. Hebrews and chapter 12. I want to read uh, verses 12 through 17. Hebrews and chapter 12, please. Verse 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12. Hear the word of God. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I think by now, having worked our way through twelve and a half chapters of uh, the book of Hebrews, we understand both the intention and the seriousness of this author. His intention is to keep this company of people, this group of people, from drifting away. That is, they appear to have a tendency to, to cease following Christ. And so he's, he's, he's writing to them to keep them from drifting away. He wants them to continue to live by faith. As he puts it, he wants them to continue to run the race. He's now set before us this metaphor of running the race. And uh, as living by faith, it's a marathon race, it's got hurdles, it's got obstacles, it's a race that's run all your life. There is no end to running this race, there's no ceasing living by faith. And so what he wants them to do is to continue to run, to continue to run this race, that's his intention. And his seriousness about running this race, you get the sense that that's all that matters to him. And that would be a good sense because that is all that matters to him as he writes, that they continue to run, that they continue to live by faith, that nothing else really matters. Because everything about being a Christian, let me put it this way, being a Christian is all-encompassing. Christianity isn't for people who like to compartmentalize their lives. Christianity isn't for people who like to segment different segments of their life out and, and, and live by one set of rules or one set of beliefs in one area of life and then live by another set of rules, another set of beliefs in another area of life. In the old days, we just simply called that hypocrisy. And now we're more sophisticated. So we call it compartmentalization. Uh, we say that, that in this area of life, perhaps at work, you can be very nice, but then when you, become, when you go home, you can be a tyrant. Or that you can teach Sunday school in this segment of your life, but in this segment of your life, be uh, a liar. You see. 
Or in this segment of your life, you can be out with your friends and cuss like a sailor. But in this segment of your life, when you're in front of your mom, you never do. Right? Well, that's compartmentalization. That's hypocrisy. But, but, but there seems to be this sense that that's okay. But it isn't okay for the author of Hebrews. He says, being a Christian following Christ infiltrates every area of life, breaks down every compartment that you have. And so following Christ is the most important thing, the driving factor in every area of your life, whether it's your marriage or whether it's the way you vote or whether it's how you do your business or, or, or whatever it is. That's the driving point of your life. That's the central point of your life, following Christ everywhere, all the time. There isn't a compartmentalization. And so for the author of Hebrews, he says, don't drift away. That is, don't live this way here and that way there. Christ is your all in all in every segment, in every, in every area of your life. Because you see, when push comes to shove, all that matters is faith in Christ. There is no alternative. And you say, well, there must be an alternative. People live without faith in Christ all the time. And I understand that that's true, but that is simply not an alternative. That's death. It might feel like life, but that's death. And when the Bible talks about death, we talk about physical life and spiritual life. Physical death, spiritual death. Living without faith in Christ is spiritual death. It means that you're under the wrath of God. It means that you're not really living. And that's not a good alternative. That's not an alternative, you see. Some students say, well, you know, not studying is an alternative to studying. No, it really isn't. Not if you want to be a student, <laughs> right? Doing an unacceptable job at work isn't an alternative if you want to keep working. So it isn't an alternative. It's not just it's a different thing to do. It's just not an alternative if you want to continue work. Thus, if you desire to be accepted by God, there is no other alternative. There is no other way other than through faith in Christ. If you want to live spiritually, that is, be connected to God, be accepted by Him. The only way for that to take place is to believe in Jesus, to live by faith. There is no, no other alternative. And that's true in the long run. Uh, some now defunct economist that I used to study by the name of John Maynard Keynes once said, in the long run, we're all dead. That isn't true, of course. In the long run, perhaps we're all physically dead. But in the long run, the question is whether you are spiritually alive or spiritually dead. That's really the point, isn't it? And so, again, for the author of Hebrews, all he cares about is that these people live, not live physically, but live spiritually. And he knows that the only way to live is by way of faith in Christ. In the long run, and even in the short run. Because in the short run, if there's no faith in Christ, he understands that your life is wasted. Because it's simply leading to the time when spiritual death is, is real and visible and felt and known. Even though for the moment you may feel very much alive. And so for him there is no alternative. And so the seriousness for him is really 
really great. He doesn't know what else to talk about other than faith in Christ. Just any morning when I was waiting for my computer to come on uh, in my office at home, I pulled out this little book, little book, uh, that's called Goodbye, Mr. Chips. It's uh, just a little book about a teaching profession. And uh, I, was, I read the foreword because I wanted to know something about the author while I was waiting to do this, and I knew I didn't have time to read the whole book, so I would just read the foreword. Uh, and uh, it was about the author, James Hilton, and about his writing style. And he made mention of this fact. He said, a day came when he found out, this was a long time ago, obviously, old book, like all the other books in my library. Um, uh, he'd, he'd come to the realization, been informed of the fact that the Russians had perfected the atomic bomb. And so he would begin writing a novel, and he said he'd get to about page 50, and then he'd simply say, so what? The Russians have an atomic bomb. I can't write pleasantries. I can't write silly stories. That's too important. And that's the author of Hebrews. He's saying, listen, whatever else is going on, we can't really talk about that. All we can talk about is faith in Christ. Don't give up. Keep running the race, because they've got bombs. And if you stop... At this point in time, you're going to get hit. So we've got to keep going. Somebody's got to talk about these bombs. And somebody's got to make sure that we keep running the race, you see. And everything else, for the author of Hebrews, is futile to talk about. We've got to nail this, or there isn't anything nailed down. There isn't anything else more important to talk about than this. So he writes about it, and he says, okay, you've got to run this race. Therefore, lay aside every weight and sin that could possibly trip you up. Lay everything like that aside. Obviously, lay aside your sin because if you're walking in sin, then you're vulnerable. So lay that aside. Confess that sin. Repent of it. Turn from it. Get running. Lay aside every weight, everything that may even not be a sin, but just be a hindrance to you in running this race of faith. So anything that doesn't contribute positively to your faith, you have to ask the question, is it really worth it? whether it's my money or whether my social standing or whether it's the way I dress or, or, or the movies I watch or the books I read or those kinds of things. Maybe those things aren't sin per se, but the question is, are they helping you or hurting you in this walk of faith? If they're hurting you, lay them aside. They're simply not worth it because what's of value is that which enables you, helps you to continue to walk by faith in Christ. And then he says, look to Jesus, first and forth, first. And foremost, look to Jesus because he's the author and perfecter of faith. If we're to live by faith, to whom should you look? Wouldn't you look to the one who's authored faith, who founded faith? Wouldn't you look to the one who perfects faith in us? As with that man who came to Jesus uh, to ask for healing for his son, I believe, help my unbelief. He went to the right person. Help me, enable me, grant to me faith. Again, if we think that God supplies everything but faith and we supply the faith, we're in big trouble. He even supplies the faith. He even strengthens faith. He's, our Lord Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith to look to him. And not only look to him for faith, but also look to him as our example. He's more than an example to us, but he's not less than an example to us. And the truth of the matter is, the author of Hebrews is saying, now you need to walk by faith, you need to continue to run in this race, even when it's most difficult to do that. 
That is, even when you're suffering, that's the context here. And so he says, look to Jesus as our example, because he lived by faith even in the midst of his own suffering. And he suffered greater than any of us can possibly suffer. And realize the fact that Jesus suffered not because God wasn't sovereign over all the events of life, not because he was out of God's will. Obviously, Jesus was never out of God's will. And it wasn't because the Father didn't love the Son, because he was his beloved Son. And so realize that our suffering isn't because God doesn't love us, or that God isn't sovereign, or that God isn't wise, or that God doesn't have a plan, and somehow that's all gone awry. But realize that even in the midst of your suffering, God loves you. And God is wise in the context of your life. And God has an intention for ordaining this suffering in your life. And that intention is that you would share in his holiness. And so he says, you need to be trained through this suffering. Not discouraged by this suffering. And so the author of Hebrews tells them, in essence, as we look at Jesus, he tells them, your suffering is not evidence that God doesn't love you. In fact, it's quite the contrary. Because what is evidence that God loves you is that he's going to train you in holiness through this suffering and prove himself to be the Father who loves you. Because a father disciplines, a father trains his own children. And so as you're being trained in holiness through even suffering. It's proof to you that God is your Father. So don't become bitter, but mature. Don't become bitter, but share in God's holiness, because through that, the very character of Christ will be built in you, will be developed in you. But so now what's he going to say? Verse 12, he says, Therefore, all right, now remember, he's writing to a group of people who are suffering, and he's writing to a group of people who are suffering, not because God doesn't love them. In fact, he's told them the exact opposite. They're suffering, and God does love them. They're suffering, not because God isn't wise with their lives, because God is wise with their lives. They're suffering, not because God is in control, isn't in control of the events of their life, because he is the sovereign God of all that is. And so he's saying, now, therefore... What are they going to do? What kind of counsel is going to give to these suffering people, especially given the way he describes them? He says, he, he says they've got drooping hands, weak knees, and are walking on crooked paths, essentially. I mean, that's this metaphor of the runner uh, gone bad. I mean, that's an exhausted, discouraged runner with his hands down to his sides, with his knees wobbly, and he's not even right on the track. He doesn't want to run on the track. He's kind of meandering on the side of the track where the ground seems a little softer or easier or more to his liking at that moment. That's not somebody really vigorously running this race. And so what does he say to those people? Now, you might think he would say, listen, I understand. I understand it's really hard at this point in time. I understand that, that you might be angry with God and you might want to shake your fist at God. Well, you know, God's big enough for that, so, so go ahead and do that. And, and I know you might not really want to trust him at the moment and, and continue to run, so just take some time off away from God for a while because I know it's really hard. But he doesn't say that at all. 
He looks to this group of people who are suffering and he says to them, lift up your hands. Strengthen your knees and get back on that path. And I want to say, you just flunked pastoring 101. I know you wrote the Bible, but still. But he didn't flunk pastoring 101, did he? He knows exactly what they need. And I trust if he's talking to one person in this congregation one-on-one, he's going to say it maybe more gently than he writes it. But he's going to get to this. This is where his pastoral heart will take him. Because he knows that if their hands continue to droop and their knees continue to shake and they continue to meander off the path, they're going to get hit by a bomb. Something bad will happen. They'll become embittered against God. And he wants them to get back running. And he wants them even to go through their exhaustion and even through their tiredness by faith. And so he has the confidence that if he can remind them that God really does love them in the midst of this, if he can remind them that something great is happening in the midst of this, that, that is they're being trained for holiness, that holiness, the very character of Christ, is being developed in them. He's confident that that will encourage them so that when he says, lift your hands, they'll go, yeah, you're right. Stabilize your knees. Yes, you're right. Get back on the path. Take everything away from the path that's going to keep you from running straight. Stop meandering. Stop being afraid to get back on this thing and run. He's going to say, get back on this thing. And run. He's not being unsympathetic. In fact, he's being empathetic. There's a sense in which he knows how they feel. And at the same time, he knows exactly what they need. And if they don't get that, then they'll be in big trouble. And so he hits them very forthrightly. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. The question then is, what does that look like? What does it look like to lift up your hands when you're exhausted and tired from suffering? What does it look like to strengthen your knees? What what does it look like to get on this straight and right path? He goes on and puts it like this, verse 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now you've got to understand what he's saying here. He's saying to a group of suffering people, probably suffering by way of persecution... He's saying, okay, now, with your persecutors, I want you to strive for peace. Because, you see, if you don't, if you don't strive for peace uh, with your persecutors, uh, then you're not going to be able to run a straight race. Because you'll end up becoming embittered against them. And embittered, ultimately, against God. So he says, strive for peace with them. Jesus said the same thing, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, put it like this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father 
is perfect. Jesus said, listen, when you're being uh, persecuted, uh, you need to love your persecutors. It's an amazing thing. In Luke chapter 6, Luke records Jesus uh, putting it like this. Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. Jesus said, But I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So the way that we love, the, the way that to love their enemies is not to give in to their enemies in the sense of saying, okay, you're my enemy because I believe in Jesus, therefore I won't believe in Jesus anymore, therefore we'll have peace. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's saying, I want you to pray for those who persecute you. Don't take vengeance against them. Uh, I want you to bless them with your lips. The Apostle Paul experienced this, 1 Corinthians and chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul puts it like this. He writes, And we labor with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat or we answer kindly. It says, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul experienced this. He experienced people revile him, reviling him when he spoke of Jesus. And so he said, no, we turn and we bless them. We say, God bless you. May he have mercy on you. When we're persecuted, we endure through that. We don't seek vengeance. When slandered, we answer kindly in the midst of all that. And, and that's what the author of Hebrews is telling these people who are suffering. Don't hate them. But he says, make peace with all people. And we have to understand that we're in this race together. And, and we must live at peace with each other. And oftentimes when one is suffering or some are suffering, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult for them to live at peace. Remember, he's talking to the suffering one. It's difficult to live at peace with those who aren't suffering sometimes. You know how irritating it is to be unhappy in a room full of happy people? It's just irritating, isn't it? You want them to be sad like you. And you're jealous of them for their happiness when you're sad. Don't they get it? Don't they understand? And chances are they really don't all that much, perhaps. And when we're going through suffering, it's very easy for us to get angry with people who aren't suffering as we are. Those of us who've suffered in various kinds of ways, whether it be in relationships or whether it be in illness or whether it be in grief, we understand that when we're grieving the loss in the context of a relationship or perhaps we've experienced unemployment and we are week after week, month after month. It's very difficult to live at peace with those who aren't in our particular circumstances. It's very easy to be angry with them. And the author of Hebrews says, don't do that. Live at peace with those around you. And you think, isn't that a hard word? The answer is, yes and no. (laughs) Ultimately, no, because that's precisely the word that we need to hear so that we continue to live at peace, because if we don't, we'll be in great danger of stopping the race, as he says, of being those who are lame and then crippled and not be able to go on at all. 
Tough word. How do you do that? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul puts it like this. Verse 1. He writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We've got to have that in our minds. Even as we enter through times of difficulty, even as times of suffering come upon us, we have to keep thinking that. I need to be humble and gentle in the midst of this situation. I need to be humble even in my pain, knowing that I'm no different than anybody else. Knowing that when I'm having a good day and somebody else is having a bad day, it might be hurtful to that person who's having a bad day. And here I'm having a bad time, and I have to understand those around me and live in humility and live in gentleness and be patient and bearing with one another because what I really know I need is to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in order to continue to run this race. That's how we need to live even in the context of our suffering. And then he says to them, not only strive for peace with everyone, but also strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How do we keep from becoming embittered in the midst of suffering? We have to keep our eyes on the goal. We have to keep our eyes on the target. We have to say, what this is bringing in my life is holiness. And that's got to be the very desire of our lives in order to continue to press on, in order to continue to run. As I said earlier during the offering time, if our heart's desire is leisure and we suffer to the point where we lose leisure, we'll become embittered against God unless we can say, this will bring holiness and I'll see the Lord. If our heart's desire is on money and we're called to suffer in such a way that takes money away from us, we'll become embittered against God unless we see in that the very fact that God will build holiness in me and that's really what I desire and that's really what is good. If our heart's set on having good health and we're called by God to suffer in such a way that takes health from us, will become embittered against God unless we're able to see through that and say, through this suffering, God will enable me to share in His holiness. And if sharing in His holiness isn't what drives me, if that's not the thing that I desire, then I'll become embittered against God because it won't be worth it in my mind. If God takes a relationship from me and causes me to suffer in that way, if my heart's desire is set on that relationship, And now I'm called to suffer the loss of that. I'll become embittered against God unless I can realize that through this suffering, he will enable me to share in his holiness. He says, listen, you've got to strive for holiness, meaning you've got to set your heart on holiness. Jesus put it like this. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God, the author of Hebrews, strive for holiness without which no one can see the Lord. You see, when we're living without a desire to walk with God, when we're living without holiness set on our minds, we won't see God. Meaning, we won't get it. We won't understand. We won't perceive Him and what He's doing. It's only when our hearts are set upon Him when our heart's desire is for holiness, that we'll see Him, perceive Him, 
Know him. Live in him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, this is what all of life is about. I know you're suffering, but live at peace. Strive for holiness. Because in the midst of that, you'll see God. And when you see God, you'll run. And then he goes on like this. Verse 15. He says, see to it. Now at this point, he's talking to everyone. That little expression, see to it, is a collective thing. It's, I want each one of you to be responsible for the other. I want each one of you to see to this. And here's what he wants us to see to. He says, I want you to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He says, listen, I'm talking now to everybody. I was talking to the suffering ones a minute ago, but now it's the responsibility of every single one of you to make Make sure that you don't miss the grace of God. That isn't the responsibility of pastors. That's not the responsibility of elders. That's the responsibility of friends. That's the responsibility of each one of us in relationship to each other. To see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And you can say, well, how can you miss the grace of God? Well, in this context, the grace of God through suffering is training in holiness. Right? In this context, the grace of God is the training that comes through the suffering, the training in holiness. And he's saying, make sure as a community of people that you don't miss that. I have a book in my library, and I have to confess, I don't like the book, but I love the title. So I've kept the book with a little indentation in the opening flap saying, this is a terrible book, but it's got a great title. Right? I just don't like how he, how he goes about fleshing out the title. If I were smarter and better, I'd rewrite the book. But I'm not, so I won't. So there, I'll just steal the title. And the title is, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. Don't waste them. Be trained by them. And now the author of Hebrews is telling us, as a group collectively, make sure that you don't waste your sorrows. Make sure there isn't anyone among you who misses this holiness training. So when one of you is suffering, it's your responsibility as a group of people to enter into their lives. Now again, as I said, this isn't a call to pastors and elders. This is a call to us all. So when you have friends that are in the midst of suffering, the word of God to you is see to it that your friend doesn't miss the grace of God. See to it that your friend understands that their suffering isn't because God is punishing them. That their suffering isn't because God doesn't love them. Isn't because God isn't wise. Isn't because God doesn't know what he's doing. Make sure, see to it, that your friend understands that God will train him or her through their period of suffering to share in his holiness. And that in the midst of that, they will see God. So make sure you do that. That's our responsibility, each one of us. I mean, that's the blessing and the danger of becoming a friend, isn't it? That's the blessing and the danger of entering into relationship with each other as a group of people, as a body of believers. 
the ones that you're closest to, you're responsible most in the context of their suffering to make sure they don't miss it. And again, it's so wonderfully put. Of course, this is the Bible. It puts everything wonderfully. It's so wonderfully put. Make sure they don't miss the grace of God because that's what it is. How more gracious than for God to make us holy so that we can see him. So we have to see to it. Because he goes on to say, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Because you see, the opposite of receiving the grace of God that is becoming more holy in seeing him, the opposite of that, if that doesn't happen, what happens is bitterness. Bitterness against God. And if that takes place in one or two of us, then that will affect many. Because he says that it defiles. The little word defile is a word in Greek that you can, um, that describes painting or staining something, coloring it. And you know how you can color the opinions of another by the way that you speak, whether it's in gossip or slander or just, you know, we're good at this, just the way you twist it, you know, just the way you twist it. He said, that'll happen, you see. If we become bitter against God, bitter against each other because of our suffering, in the midst of suffering, then it'll just permeate through a body. I've seen it. You've seen it. And so it's the responsibility of each one of us to see to it that that doesn't happen. So therefore, with the context of those we know and love who are suffering, we need to go to them and gently and graciously and pastorally and in every sort of loving kind of way possible make certain that they understand the value of being trained by this to see God and then that they themselves do not become bitter, that we don't become bitter associated with them. That would be disastrous. And then he uses, of all people, Esau as an illustration. Now, trust me, you don't want Esau to be used as an illustration about you. I mean, he just wasn't a great character. Neither was his brother all that hot. But, but you know, Jacob and Esau were twin brothers of Isaac and Rebekah. And uh, you might remember that a day came in Esau's life when he was very hungry. Seems to be famished because he thought he was going to die unless he got some food. His brother Jacob, uh, the, the, the conniving one, was making this stew. I suppose it smelled really good. His brother comes up to him. Esau comes up to him and says, give me a bowl of that stew. And Jacob says, I will if you give me your birthright. Now, that was like saying, I will if you give me your life. This was no small thing. This wasn't just a certificate of birth. This wasn't just some, something that said Esau was born to Isaac and Rebekah and any of that. This was his inheritance. He was the firstborn. And this was everything. So Jacob was saying, I'll give you this pot of stew for everything, for your whole life that God has given to you. And Esau said, I'm going to die. So what good is my birthright? And so he gave it all up for lunch. And it's very easy for us to do that, you see. When we're suffering, and the author of Hebrews is saying, please see to it 
that no one around you does that. See to it that nobody says, hey, I've just lost my job. What good is this Christianity? What good is Christ? You know, I have cancer. What good is Christ? I just lost my wife. What good is Christ? He says, make sure nobody does that. Make sure nobody sells that which is temporal for that which is eternal. And understand that which is eternal is the holiness by which you'll see God. And so his intention, his seriousness is lay everything else aside. Don't let anything get in your way. When your arms start to droop, by the mercy of God, lift them. Get them at your side to be running again. When your knees feel weak, by the mercy of God, strengthen them. When you get off and meander because it feels more comfortable for the moment, by the mercy of God, get back on. You see, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for holiness. Don't miss the grace of God, which is training in holiness by way even of this suffering. And move on. Get on with it. And you'll see God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that we would, uh, in the midst of our own personal suffering, uh, not miss the grace of God. And Father, as friends of those who suffer, may we see to it that they don't miss it either. Give us the grace to love them and to care for them to speak comfort and truth to them, and to live in such a way that doesn't embitter them, but causes them to desire all that you have. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, uh, I remind you that elders are available, available to pray at the uh, office area after the service. So, <clears throat> excuse me, please take advantage of that. I know some of you may need that for the cold that you just caught. Uh, it's a little chilly in here. Um, the response to the benediction is this. I will run the race. All right? Amen. To say that you'll run the race is to say, all right. I'll live at peace with everyone. I'll strive for holiness. I'll lift up my arms, strengthen my knees, and I'll run the path that's set before me. The word amen simply means that's the way it's going to be. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I will run the race. Amen.